are here today with our old friend and um, one of the most knowledgeable people uh, I think that anybody knows uh, about the the sovereign debt markets, Lee Bukite. And we're excited to have Lee here again because we have a, a wide range of things we wanted to talk about, uh, some recent drama uh, and some questions about sovereign bond documentation also. And we can't really think of a better person to talk to than Lee. So Lee, um, if I can just to start with a sort of current events kind of question, if you don't mind. There was some drama recently having to do with the, um, uh, the question of EU bonds and with um, so the question of what kind of obligations they were. And, and I gather the drama sort of started with an investor presentation where one of the slides made a kind of oblique reference to these bonds being viewed as joint and several liabilities of the respective European governments. And I think that was a surprise to a lot of people and a lot of people were worried that this was um, some new uh, obligation, some new type of liability that people hadn't been anticipated. Can you just give us, tell us a little bit about the these bonds and about the the background to this question? Is it an important question? Sure. Uh, let's start with the background. You may remember uh, going all the way back to 2010 and the Eurozone debt crisis, there was considerable hand-wringing and tooth-gnashing in Europe about the question of whether uh, the European countries would issue a mutualized debt instrument by which people meant a debt instrument that carried uh, either the joint and several uh, uh, guarantees of the member states or at the very least the several guarantees. That is each country uh, liable for its rateable share uh, under the uh, European Union framework. Uh, there was great resistance to that, uh, particularly by the Germans, who saw that as the proverbial camel's nose under the tent uh, toward uh, fiscal integration in Europe. And uh, it, it was debated intensively, has been for at least a decade. What has happened recently, as I understand it, you saw that the uh, Europeans have approved a recovery, COVID recovery program, and they're saying they intend to finance that by issuing bonds through the European Commission, but acting on behalf of the European Union. So the obvious question was, what is the legal character of these bonds? Are they joint and several obligations of the member states, or are they several obligations of the member states? And uh, the European Commission has elected to respond to that by saying that, well, really there is a defense in depth here. Uh, the proceeds from the sale of these bonds, and I believe they're uh, up to 750 billion euros, the proceeds will be 
on Lent to the member countries for COVID amelioration purposes. And therefore, the first line of defense is that there never should be a situation in which these bonds are not paid in full. Why? Because one must assume that members of the European Union will always pay their obligations in full. And therefore, it's a pure pass-through at that level. Second line of defense is if the unthinkable were to happen and a European Union member country were to fail to repay uh, the loan in full, second line of defense is they say that, that there are elements in the European Union budget that they could reallocate to cover the deficiency third line of defense is if all else failed, uh, they rather vaguely say uh, they could call upon member states to make up the deficiency. So <laughs> the answer is uh, that they're not giving a clear answer about the issue of joint and, and several liability that proved so contentious uh, back in the days of the Eurozone debt crisis. The benefit of this idea, though, is that you recall another old chestnut that has been kicking around in Europe is what to do with the so-called doom loop between European sovereigns and their banks. Uh, it has been... The practice in Europe for commercial banks to invest very heavily in uh, Euro European sovereign bonds, uh, particularly bonds of their own government. So Italian banks very heavily invested in debt obligations of the Italian state. And they do that. Uh, because they are allowed to uh, treat those debt obligations as risk-free. So they don't have to post any capital um, uh, behind uh, that. And they argue these are liquid obligations, and therefore if the bank uh, uh, gets into a liquidity crunch, this is something that they can very quickly sell or discount at the European Central Bank. The problem, as we saw during the Eurozone debt crisis, is that this brings the sovereigns and their banks uh, into a relationship where if the sovereign gets into trouble, as Greece did, as Ireland did, as Portugal did, as Cyprus did, uh, it very quickly brings down their banks because the banks are up to their eyeballs in obligations of the parent state. And this is the so-called doom loop. And for yeah. the last, sorry, go, go ahead. I, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I, I wanted to ask what your perception is of what's happening in Europe. So if memory serves, after the Greek crisis and after its resolution that 
you helped with immensely, the, the pronouncements were that we will never again be in a situation where investors can argue that we as the European community stand as a backstop to every sovereign bond issued by every EU nation. And that I thought was the goal. And therefore, as part of achieving the goal, uh, the, the Europeans came up with their fancy collective action clauses, and there was lots of hand-wringing and drama about uh, their inclusion and then their revision. But as I listen to you, uh, it seems that the situation right now is really one of the European authorities saying we will indeed be the backstop and guarantee every euro that is borrowed by every euro member nation. Is, is that how you read this? Well, they would not say that openly, no. Uh, but remember that aside from the sole exception of the Greek debt restructuring two years into the crisis, every other country that was afflicted by the Eurozone debt crisis wound up directly or indirectly being bailed out uh, by the European Union. And uh, therefore, <laughs> uh, if the public position is, as indeed the treaty establishing the European Union, uh, monetary union requires uh, that states are not responsible for obligations of their sister states. If that is the public position, I think it is be belied by their practice. Moreover, during the Eurozone debt crisis, you had senior European officials like the president of the European Central Bank repeatedly saying, that there never will, never could, never can, never should be a sovereign debt restructuring in the Eurozone. And if you say we will never restructure Eurozone sovereign bonds, that's just another way of saying that they are going to be paid. And if the debtor country can't pay them, then someone else will, and we all know who that someone else is. So it's it's a separation of what what I think the legal position is, which is that they're not certainly not obliged to do that with what their practice has been. Can I let me just ask one quick follow up, Lee, about um, sort of a related topic of these social bonds that the EU has been issuing of late. Um, and I, I guess I'm just, I'm a little bit sort of puzzled by the underlying sort of conception of these bonds. They're not green bonds. I guess green, green stuff isn't social and they're not ordinary bonds. I guess the stuff that people borrow for in the ordinary course of events isn't social either. What is the, the what are these social bonds and what's the underlying logic there? I'm afraid I can't answer that, Mark. I don't know enough about the social bonds. It strikes me as obvious that all state borrowing is at some level social. <laughs> the proceeds are being used by the 
government for governmental purposes of one kind or another, all of which ought to be benefiting the society. Uh, but, you know, we have now the rise of this so-called ESG lending environment, social and governance. And uh, I think there is a, a, a trend among issuers of bonds, both corporate and sovereign, to be able to attach the initials ESG to whatever they're doing. Lee, I mean, that, so as you know, I'm deeply skeptical whenever I see, you know, the label social or green or blue or, you know, purple on these bonds. Because when I look at the events of default on these bonds, there's never something that says, you know, if, if we, the sovereign, do not perform appropriately in terms of making our country more green or blue or purple, uh, we will um, give you your money back uh, early or we will, um, you know, do something else. There seems to be no monitoring mechanism, uh, no real penalty mechanism, except in, I think in one case, I saw the interest rate would go up. So it actually benefit the investors if they, if the country doesn't behave. It, it seems like it's just eyewash. And I'm wondering why so much eyewash, and it seems to be particularly popular in European sovereign bonds. Well, um, in so-called green or blue bonds, uh, environmental projects, either on the land or the ocean, uh, the key phrase is in the use of proceeds of the issuance. We will use the proceeds to fund a conservation easement over 500 square miles of ocean, for example. That ought to be verifiable. But as always with sovereigns, they are sovereign. And if they decide they're not going to do something like that uh, or carry through with it, what is your remedy? Well, the remedy, as you point out, would logically be one in contract. You have breached the use of proceeds clause, and that would entitle us to accelerate and uh, and bring a lawsuit. Uh, and if, and I'll, I'll take your word for it, I haven't myself looked at them, but if indeed there isn't a contractual remedy set out in the debt instrument for that, then it is uh, back to the old, trust us, we're Ruritania. Lee, if I can can switch gears yet again. I, I apologize, but since we have you here, there are so many questions I wanted to, to be sure to ask. And I wanted to get you to weigh in on a discussion that Mitu and I have had um, both between ourselves and also with some of the guests that we've had on the podcast about the G20's so-called common framework for debt treatments. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the simplest way to put the question is just to ask whether this is a big deal or whether, whether this is more kind of can kicking down the road. Uh, and the, the subtext is 
that um, we've had lots of people uh, explain that this is a major, major development. And um, for a number of reasons, I struggle to be convinced of that. Among them, it seems to me that it leaves sort of unclear the treatment of state-owned entities as creditors. But I'm wondering um, what your reaction is to the G20's common framework. Is this a, an important tool if we wind up um, having a significant wave of COVID-related defaults? It is significant, Mark, in this sense, that for the first time, the traditional bilateral lenders represented by the so-called Paris Club, these are the OECD countries that have traditionally dominated the bilateral lending to emerging markets, their debt restructuring activities will be coordinated I think that's the operative term in the common framework with non-Paris Club bilateral creditors for which you should understand principally China. Now, China has been an observer at the Paris Club but has declined repeated invitations to become a member. <laughs> Why? Because were it to become a member, it would then have to follow the consensus assessment of the Paris Club in what to do with the debt of a particular country. Thus far, China has jealously guarded its independence in that regard. It wanted the ability to do bespoke debt restructurings when uh, its bilateral loans uh, got into trouble. To the extent that the common framework says that for the first time China will coordinate its activities with the Paris Club, that's a big deal. Uh, what it will mean in practice, we don't know yet. Uh, three countries have ostensibly signed up for common framework debt restructurings, uh, Ethiopia, Chad, and Zambia, if I recall correctly. Uh, but uh, we haven't seen what the process is. The common framework is not a, a framework in the sense that HIPIC was, the Highly Indebted Poor Country Initiative, starting in the, in the mid-90s, or the Brady Plan was, in the sense that it does not prescribe what the terms of a common framework restructuring would be. Uh, both Hippic and Brady uh, really had a template for what the transaction would look like. There's nothing like that in the common framework. There are only two areas where the common framework indicates substantive uh, features of a debt restructuring under the common framework. The first is that the debtor country must have an IMF program uh, that is consistent with Paris Club practice. And the second is that the country must accept and must, must agree to uh, uh, what is called the uh, comparable treatment requirement that has been an invariable feature of Paris Club deals. That feature says that the country, and the words are important, 
must seek debt relief from its other bilateral creditors and its commercial creditors on terms that are not less favorable to the debtor country than those agreed by, in this case, the Paris Club in China. The terms to be assessed in a net present value sense. But the Paris Club has never, (laughs) in all these years, confided to us what the consequence would be for a country that sought but did not find comparable debt relief from its other creditors. And this is a major issue with the common framework. What would happen if the common framework countries gave debt relief, the country went out and said, well, I've asked uh, my hedge fund uh, creditors to grant equivalent debt relief, and they have told me to go peel a grape. So I think I'm just following your train. So that this is, so the common framework that some say is this wonderful thing that will ensure private creditor participation, which which has been the problem right uh, from the beginning, uh, starting with the G20's initial initiative that went nowhere in getting the private creditors to participate. And now this one, basically all that it says is politely ask, we promise to politely ask our private creditors to participate and that's it. And if the private creditors, as you said, say go peel a grape, you have fulfilled your obligation under the common framework because you asked. (laughs) Me too, you put your finger on the, on the, the issue that has been here for, since 1956, when the Paris Club was formed, what is the sanction if a country fails to achieve comparable debt relief from its other creditors? Footnote, as many countries have done, uh, have failed to do. Um, what is the sanction? The, logically, the sanction should be that the debt relief being provided by the Paris Club slash China under the common framework is revoked. Everyone returns to the status quo ante. But I at least am unaware of a single instance in which the Paris Club has revoked its debt relief to a debtor country because of an alleged breach of the a comparable treatment requirement. I, for many years, me too, I have wondered about that language in Paris Club Agreed Minutes. You commit to seek comparable debt relief from your other creditors. I assumed that was either the product of diplomacy, uh, that it would seem undiplomatic to tell countries to sign a piece of paper by which they commit to default on their other obligations if the creditors refuse to give their consent to debt relief. Or it might have been the product of the lawyers who were telling the Paris Club that were they to 
force a country to make a commitment of that kind that they could be accused of tortious interference with the country's other contractual relations. But it's probably one or the other. But in any event, it, 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 it has pleased everyone for the last 60-some uh, years uh, for this to be uh, deliberately ambiguous. Oh, this this sounds terrible, but I know that there are some out there who think that uh, it it will solve all of our problems. It just sounds like a recipe for disaster. But on that optimistic note, uh, we should go to our break, and then after the break, Lee, if you don't mind, we will ask you a set of questions having to do with the Zambian contract documents that our students are busy thinking about and wrestling. So Lee, when we were just about to go to break, so I had heard uh, some ambivalence, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, or, or, or at least I had heard that there are some respects, at least, in which the common framework might actually be quite a big deal. Um, and then some some uncertainties about about whether it would be important in other respects. So, do you have a sort of final final verdict? Any anything you'd um, you'd like to add as we move on? Yes, it is a big deal insofar as it brings China and the other non-Paris Club bilateral creditors into a coordination with the Paris Club. We'll see how that plays out, but potentially that has been something that the international financial architecture has lacked for, for a long time. It is not such a big deal insofar as the common framework applies only as did the debt service suspension initiative to the world's poorest countries. There are 73 countries eligible on that list, but only 46 have availed themselves of the debt service suspension initiative, and I would not expect that number to grow uh, for the common framework. The second way in which the common framework was a disappointment uh, was uh, in a very short document, there is an explicit reference to debt write-offs, debt cancellations, debt haircuts. And it says that debt haircuts will not figure as the normal tool uh, in common framework debt restructurings. They don't rule, rule out debt cancellation, but they say it will be uh, relevant only in the most extreme cases. Now, that's an interesting statement to make because countries entered this pandemic with historically high debt stocks. They have gotten a lot higher in the last year, and you only begin a common framework uh, debt restructuring if the IMF has assessed that you have an unsustainable debt problem. And now we're saying that those unsustainable debt stocks will be kicked down the road. They won't be reduced. And that, I think, was a disappointment in the common framework. So Lee, if you don't mind, we'd like to turn now to some specific 
contract provisions. And for those who don't know, our annual tradition in our sovereign debt class, the class that Mark and I teach together, and that is the inspiration for this podcast, typically the highlight of the class is when Lee comes to visit us at the end of the term, answers all questions, and then asks the students tough questions of the proposals that they have been working on all term. And these are proposals that uh, typically focus on one or two countries that are in distress. So this term, we have focused on Zambia. And Lee, you had just mentioned that Zambia is one of the few countries that has asked for the common framework. Presumably what will happen now is that it will get some relief from the Paris Club creditors in China, and then it will go to its private creditors, and those private creditors will give them a big bowl of grapes and say, as Lee Bukheit said, start peeling the grapes. That's our response. So that in turn means that the lawyers for Zambia will have to think about how to, shall we say, incentivize private participation. Now, our students have focused in on two clauses in the Zambian documents, and th th there may be more and uh, that Mark remembers, but I'm going to take, put on the hat of my students and ask some of the questions that I remember them asking. So the first clause, Lee, this is a clause that is near and dear to your heart, is the wonderful, beloved Pari Pasu clause. And this clause in the Zambian context, and the Zambian bonds, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, the Zambian euro bonds are governed by English law. And so the clause says, the notes constitute direct general and unconditional obligations of the issuer, which will rank at all times pari passu among themselves and at least pari passu with all other present and future unsecured obligations of the issuer. And now this is the part that is the students have focused on as important. Save for such obligations, meaning this is not in the pari passu, as may be preferred by provisions of law that are both mandatory and of general application. So the question that many of our students are asking is broadly whether or not this incredibly vague provision provides a debtor some leverage. And more specifically, the question is, this provision mentions that an exception to the Pari Pasu clause is for those obligations as may be preferred by provisions of law that are both mandatory and of general application. And the question simply put is, what the hell does mandatory and of general application mean? And whose provisions of law 
is it the debtor's provisions of law? And so can the debtor just pass a law saying, we don't want to pay you ever again? All right, that was very long-winded, uh, but I know you have an answer, Lee. Uh, okay, I'll give you a long-winded answer. First, by way of preamble, I wouldn't be so pessimistic about the uh, Zambian bondholders. I think they're about $3 billion worth of bonds um, that are part of the Zambian debt stock. If there were a bilateral debt restructuring under the common framework, uh, I wouldn't be too pessimistic about the bondholders matching that, particularly because of the sentence that that we just talked about in the common framework, that that debt restructuring is unlikely to involve a principal haircut. And so uh, what the bondholders loathe most of all is uh, having to write off a portion of their claims. Stretching it out is not nearly as painful to them. So I wouldn't be too, too pessimistic about that. But on your question, the short answer to your question is that additional phrase is simply a mistake in a sovereign bond. The Paripasu Clause, when it began to be introduced uh, in cross-border debt contracts in the late 1970s, made a good deal of sense in the corporate context. Why? Because most corporate insolvency regimes divide creditors into at least three classes. There are senior creditors, the taxman. There are secured creditors, those that benefit from some sort of pledge or an or lien over an asset or revenue. And then there are the general unsecured. What the market discovered was that there were countries that had uh, legal regimes under which uh, a creditor could be involuntarily subordinated. So a, a creditor could go and uh, pay some money to a notary and get his debt instrument stamped, and the effect of that would make that a senior obligation. Well, in a corporate insolvency, that's a lot. That that puts you at the top of the pile and submerges the poor general unsecured uh, creditors because you're now senior. Well, the Paripasu Clause purported to say uh, all debt will or this debt will rank equally with all of your other senior indebtedness. Well, fine, except the law in a corporate insolvency specifies that there are certain creditors like the taxman, perhaps like unpaid pensions, uh, unfunded pensions, perhaps like unpaid employee salaries that are by law, whatever your phrase was, mandatory and of general application are senior Therefore, the Paripasu clause in a corporate debt instrument logically should have that those additional words. So that what it says is this will rank equally with your other senior indebtedness, except 
this, th those categories of senior indebtedness that are established by law in your bankruptcy code. Unfortunately, at some point, some drafter took that clause from a corporate paripasu and used it for a sovereign where it makes no sense at all. Why? Because the sovereigns are not subject to a bankruptcy code, not their own, not anyone else's. And therefore, it was simply a mistake. It is, interestingly, a mistake that appears more often in English law documents than it does in New York law documents. You rarely will see that mistake in the drafting of a paripasu clause for a New York law sovereign uh, debt instrument. Why? Because we all recognized it. it. It didn't make any sense. But there it sits in some of these English law bonds. And now you're asking, can it possibly mean what it seems to mean, which is suppose the debtor itself, remember the sovereign is the law giving authority, could the debtor itself pass a law that says um, this bond is senior to all other uh, bonds of ours and have that uh, absolve it of its obligation under the Paris-Passu Clause to maintain the equal ranking of its old indebtedness? It is a good question. I can tell you this. There was another country that I worked on that had English law bonds, some of which had the phrase that you're pointing to, and I went to see a Queen's counsel, a senior barrister, and I asked him this very question. Would an English court look at that and say, well, that's what it says. That's the black letter. And therefore, yes, I've got to respect such a law. Or, I said, would an English judge say that those words affect in a sovereign bond effectively write the Paripasu clause out of the contract. It becomes a nonsense for for a sovereign. Um, and, you know, perhaps one could empirically show that it was a mistake uh, that somehow crept into a certain number of English law bonds. He wasn't sure, but he said there's at least a reasonable chance that an English court will read it and say, I'm going to follow exactly what it says, which surprised me, but there it is. Um, there it is. But it is a mistake, is the answer. Well, Lee, if I can ask about, um, I'm afraid you'll, you'll tell us this is another mistake, um, but I'm going to ask anyway, since um, uh, it is something our students have also been interested in. So um, many of, of our students have looked at the modification provisions in the Zambian bonds, and without getting into too much detail, um, I will just say they have been somewhat dispirited by um, by those provisions. They, they've um, been skeptical that they will be able to invoke them to restructure the, the debt. And so they, they've cast a somewhat wider net. And some of them got very interested in 
what I have always thought of as sort of a fallback administrative modification provision that, that seems to be present in, in every bond and that allows the issuer to unilaterally modify the bond. And in my sort of casual understanding, you know, typically these provisions say something like, you know, the issuer can modify the bond unilaterally to, for ministerial purposes, to collect an error or to, to correct an error, or for some other ministerial purpose, as long as it's um, not prejudicial to the interests of note holders, something like that. And our students noticed that the this unilateral modification provision in Zambia's bonds seemed quite a bit broader in the sense that it allowed Zambia to decide and the, the words they were focused on were in its sole discretion whether a modification was prejudicial to note holders or not. And if it, in its sole discretion, it decided a modification was not prejudicial, then it could make it. And they were thinking of all kinds of devious things that one could do if one had such a power. And so I'm, I'm I guess the question is, what are those clauses designed to do? And to the extent one finds language that seems to give the issuer a lot of discretion in a clause like that, what do we make of it? Okay. It's a clause, you're quite right in your uh, understanding of what the clause was intended to do. It was intended to avoid the need for a full-blown canvassing of bondholders in order to correct an obvious error or to do something that is in the interests of the bondholders. If you look at how that provision has been invoked in practice over the last 50 years, I think you'll find most instances were ones in which a bond was issued. And for example, it would say this bond has a minimum denomination of $250,000, something that the securities lawyers would always insist on. Well, as the bond traded and and if the bond had to be restructured, People didn't want to buy in $250,000 lots. They they wanted to have the minimum denomination come down to be a dollar so that they could trade, you know, odd lots, as it were. Uh, now, that was very much in the interest of bondholders. And so it is this provision that was often invoked for allowing the trustee or the fiscal agent to agree to that kind of change. I suspect that's how it's been mostly used in practice. I have never seen one of these provisions that said that the judgment about whether something is materially prejudicial to the bondholders is in the sole discretion of the issuer. I have never seen that. Normally, these provisions would say, at the very least, the trustee or the fiscal agent must concur in the judgment that it is materially uh, not materially prejudicial. And again, traditionally, trustees uh, have been reluctant. Any case in which that could be questioned have been reluctant to make that decision, even if they were given the power by the document. So anything approaching 
a questionable case, the trustee would say, we've got to go and get a formal amendment. The fiscal agents are, of course, the agents of the issuer, (laughs) and therefore uh, asking them whether something is material or prejudicial is not much different from asking the issuer itself. Well, well, that's it. That's uh, I mean, that's interesting because this is the it is not a trustee structure. And the way it's written, the administrative agent has to agree, but there is no language. They have to agree to the modification, but there's nothing to indicate what standard, if any, they would apply in deciding whether to give their consent. Um, And of course, some of our students were wondering about the possibility of replacing the administrative agent with a more pliable one if uh, (laughs) it was unwilling to give its consent. (laughs) Well, uh, again, the the fiscal agent is the agent of the issuer. So the voice with which a fiscal agent speaks is the voice of the issuer. Now, in the real world, I suppose a fiscal agent would worry that bondholders would be suing it, as well it should worry, uh, even though the fiscal agent technically does does not have fiduciary duties to the bondholders, it would be alleged that it had aided and abetted uh, a violation of bondholder rights. So as a practical matter, I think they would walk more cautiously than the black letter of the agreement might suggest. But I I have never seen that provision worded to give an issuer of a debt instrument the sole discretion to decide whether a change to it was materially prejudicial to the creditors. <laughs> it seems to me, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I have never seen it. Lee, uh, I, I can't, <laughs> this is just delightful, but I'm asking you to speculate here about what your friend, the Queen's Council, might have said if you showed him this provision and asked whether or not it gave the debtor significant leeway to do things or threaten to do things that might be unpleasant for creditors who did not agree. And But I'm, I wanna ask a second question uh, as part of this as well. So these pro- two provisions, the Paripasu clause and uh, this sort of this uh, discretion to the debtor clause, they both appear in the pre-2014 euro bonds. In the post-2014 euro bonds, you have the ICMA style clauses, both for Paripasu and for uh, modifications. And those are clauses that you were involved in drafting and this lovely language that our students have found uh, disappears. I think in both cases, the language disappears. Now, once again, if we were to ask the Queen's Council uh, what would happen in a court of law, especially in English court of law, where uh, I believe they take pride in strictly reading the language Uh, to try and give effect 
to whatever the parties wanted, wouldn't the court say, look, you had one provision before that meant one thing, and now you have changed it to a different provision, and so that means a different thing. They would say that, but I, I don't recall that there was any significant discussion of removing that provision for administrative changes without the consent of the bondholders. I don't recall there was any discussion of that. I accept if you tell me that it was removed, I suspect the the rationale must have been that it is so rarely, has been so rarely invoked, uh, in part for the reason I mentioned that uh, People were afraid of being. Leah, I should, I should let me clarify. So yeah. what, what it was replaced by, I think, was sort of the more traditional manifest error. Oh uh, right, language, okay, yeah, right. So that the broad language gets taken out, and instead yeah. there's this very narrow language that says if there's a manifest error, then you can correct right. it with permission. Okay, okay, that that sounds right. So you're asking me specifically in the Zambian context, where you move from this uh, highly unusual version of the clause, which purports to give the issuer itself the sole discretion to decide whether something is materially prejudicial to the bondholders, you move from that to a version of the more traditional manifest error. So you're, yes. you're asking yes. me whether the juxtaposition of those two would strengthen the issuer's argument that in the earlier bonds, it really does have. Um, well, I, I, again, these will be English judges making this decision. I could see the issuer making the argument. The way you phrased your question was, could the issuer use this as a bit of leverage maybe to tell the bondholders, look, you know, we can all litigate this for a long time if you want. Um, I suspect it would give it a bit of leverage in a negotiation if it actually did something. And, and, and let me give the example of, of how the issuer would use it. The issuer would say, Ruritania is in dreadful financial position, uh, absent debt relief, uh, our economy completely collapses. So the debt relief that we are asking from you uh, is uh, if you perceived, you, the bondholders, perceived your best interest clearly, you would understand that giving us this debt relief is indeed in your interest. It is not just not prejudicial to you. It is positively in your favor. And because the clause gives us the sole discretion to make that judgment, uh, we are going to uh, claim that uh, these modifications can be approved without a bondholder's consent because every right-thinking observer of the situation would understand how beneficial they are. That's their argument, right? I mean, that's how it would play out. Well, and I think... That, I think you're absolutely right, Lee. And I think the thing that mo in some respects motivated this line of thinking for our students is that they noticed that the most recently issued of the three euro bonds has the 
ICMA style modification provisions that allow for aggregated voting across multiple series of bonds, whereas the earlier Zambian issuances do not. And using exactly your logic, I think, and in a sort of concession to the reality that, of course, they're not going to be able to unilaterally modify the payment terms. That might be a bridge too far. They were thinking, well, perhaps um, unilaterally modifying the earlier bonds to permit the three to be combined into an aggregated vote, perhaps maybe tinkering a bit with voting thresholds, but something that could be justified as in the best interests of the bondholders as a collective. I'm not sure if that sort of resonates with what you were saying, if that's some, you think that seems like a more plausible use of the provision or not. Not how I would use it. <laughs> if, I, if I were if I were going to do this, I think I'd buy the farm, and I would say, I, indeed, I think you might be in more trouble if you tried to say, well, we're going to tinker with the uh, operation of the collective action clause and imply an aggregation feature and da da da. I mean, it, if you're going to do this, you might as well do it and just say. Look, if we do not have this debt relief, every right-thinking economist says that uh, Ruritania, the Ruritanian economy and financial system collapses. We are trying to save you from that fate. And if you don't have the foresight and, and the clarity of vision to see it, we do. And we've, we've asked the IMF. We've asked 20 Nobel Prize winning economists. There is no dissent on this. We need this debt relief. And the only way you folks can expect to recover anything under your bonds is if we have the debt relief. And God bless you, you gave us the sole discretion to make that decision. And therefore, we're making it for you. <laughs> I would, I, you know, that strikes me as a more plausible because it probably, by the way, is true. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, we can talk about what materially prejudicial may mean, but certainly there are circumstances where, unless a debtor gets debt relief, uh, its creditors end up in a worse position. They're you know, there are innumerable instances of that. So I I don't think I'd use it around the edges. I think I'd say we see things more clearly than some of you bondholders do, and you've given us the legal ability to make the decision. I, I'm not I'm I'm not recommending this. And again, I, I've never seen the clause worded in in the way that appears in the Zambian ones, but <laughs> But that, that's we, probably how I would do it. At least had, I might at least I might threaten to do it. <laughs> I, I think you might have uh, saved the Zambian economy a few billion dollars on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly if I were the Zambian finance minister, I know <laughs> what 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 phone number 
uh, I'd be calling next uh, and they would say, Senor Lee, I just heard a podcast. It might have been an imposter, but in case it was you, uh, do you think you might be able to help guide us through this situation we have here? Lee, that was absolutely delightful. But I, um, I'm going to beg your indulgence to just ask one more question that is not about Zambia and Mark will not be happy that I'm going on longer, but uh, I think Mark has had a similar question. So we have been reading in recent weeks about uh, these schemes in the New York legislature, I believe, to pass some laws to save the world through the New York legislature, which I have to say, uh, given uh, my view of the intellect of many of the New York legislators, it is not a positive thing, but, but let's say I'm wrong. Among the things they are proposing seems to be that new borrowing by countries under New York law to provide COVID relief will, as a matter of New York law, get some kind, get priority. Now, this relates to that Paripasu question we talked about earlier. And I'm just utterly befuddled about what the hell people mean by giving priority in a system where there's no bankruptcy. I mean, what's priority unless you have some ability to stop other creditors from being paid or to sue other creditors to get payments that they would have to turn over, but just giving priority, I, I mean, since there are fancy lawyers who are pushing this there, there must be something there, but I don't, I don't get it, and I don't understand why people are taking this seriously. Well, this is a species under the broader gen- genus of sovereign bankruptcy codes. Uh, you remember in 2002, the IMF proposed a transnational bankruptcy code for sovereigns called the Sovereign Debt Restructuring Mechanism. The idea has actually been kicked around since the late 1980s when some economists said problem is that every debtor on the planet except sovereigns and states of the United States benefit from bankruptcy codes. Uh, And uh, if we are to have orderly sovereign debt workouts, they too should benefit from a bankruptcy code. And corporate bankruptcy codes typically will have a provision by which the bankruptcy court can approve as a senior obligation, in in American terminology, a debtor in possession financing, a loan extended after the bankruptcy has been commenced that will benefit from a prior claim upon the assets of the estate and therefore have a degree of priority. So what these proposals do is pick one of the features of a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism of 20 years ago and say, well, that should be done by the New York legislature. I have my doubts about whether the New York legislature is competent to do that. Remember, in this country, 
the sole law that deals with sovereign uh, immunity is the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. That is a federal law. And to the extent that some of these features could be seen as preempting uh, the federal law, uh, I'm not sure the New York legislature has the competence to do it. But that's that's essentially what that says is um, uh, we can encourage a debt restructuring by purporting to give seniority either to new lending, that's debtor in possession financing, or even to creditors who accept the debt restructuring. But you have to understand what you're really saying is, what does it mean to say to give priority to a creditor that accepts a debt restructuring? It presumably means that a holdout creditor will not be paid until the participating creditors are paid in full. Well, that's just another way of saying that you have written off the holdout creditors, um, which is even worse than uh, what would happen in a bankruptcy. In a bankruptcy, dissenting creditors would be forced to accept the same deal that the supermajority of their colleagues accepted. This arguably works a complete write-off, and I would be very, very doubtful about whether, uh, first, whether any legislature would approve such a thing, but whether that would withstand a legal challenge. Well, Lee, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. We have, um, we could keep you here for another hour and pester you with questions, but I suspect you have um, other places to be. we're really thrilled that you were able to join us, though. So thank you so, so much for coming. No, no, my, my pleasure. I see the Zambian ministers on the phone. So let me take that. <laughs>